Well, I invite you to turn to John chapter 19. So John chapter 19, we're going to look at verses 28 to 30. We'll read those verses, and that's all we'll consider uh, as well this morning. Before we do so, I invite you to uh, pray. Our gracious God, we are very thankful that you raised up men by your Holy Spirit to record the life and ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ and at the cross could slow down so that we can behold all the fulfillment of Scripture and all the deep meanings of even his words from the cross. And so thank you that we have in front of us uh, these incredible words. And as we study them, we ask that your Holy Spirit would attend to our study, would minister to each of us as we need, that your Son might be exalted. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. John 19, verse 28. After this, I think the battery just died. What would we do without electricity? John 19 at verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Thus far the reading of God's word, may he bless it to our hearts and lives this morning. So beloved congregation of hope and everyone with us here this morning and listening, we have before us some of the most profound, powerful words uh, ever written in all of scripture and uh, ever spoken by Jesus from uh, the cross. Uh, I wanna just dive right into it. And I want us to notice just two things from the passage we have before us. The first is that Jesus quenches thirsty souls and also that Jesus saves completely sinners. Jesus saves sinners to the uttermost or all the way. And I want us to hone in. We're just gonna look at uh, two of his sayings from the cross, the third to the last and second to the last. I want us to hone in on verse, verses 28 and 29 under this first point. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. So Jesus has been on the cross for, let's say, roughly uh, four to six hours, depending on how you want to count the time and exactly what time he got on there. But it's been a while now. And there's a couple of things which stand out from these three verses. That is that he's still concerned about fulfilling the scripture and he's just physically thirsty. Those two things stand out. Now, in the fulfillment of scripture, he is likely referencing a passage from Psalm 69, verse 21. They gave me poison for food and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. So along with the psalmist, he's talking about his thirst. He's thirsty. And so in order to provoke the soldiers to fulfill Psalm 69, 21, so they'll actually give him sour wine to drink, he says, I thirst. 
That's in order that this scripture passage might be fulfilled. And so indeed he does it, and they put it on a hyssop branch. They held it up to his mouth so that he could suck it off the sponge-like material, and his lips would have been wetted, and he would have gotten a little bit uh, to drink uh, from that. Now, if you recall from Mark, chapter 15, verse 23, it looks like there might be an apparent contradiction because there we're told they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Well, that's at the beginning of the crucifixion process, and that was sometimes what they gave out of mercy toward those who were being crucified. They gave them that to numb the pain. Hey, give them just, make their heart glad. Give them a little bit of wine to help dull the pain slightly. And Jesus refused it. He would not take it. He came to this world to suffer, and he was going to suffer full in the midst of it. So what the soldiers gave Jesus is sour wine. Now, this is wine that is either a drink the soldiers would drink to sustain them under the hot sun, kind of like we might drink Gatorade or water. Very watered-down wine, not like ours with 15% alcohol, but very watered-down and with a little bit of sourness and almost like a vinegary taste. It's possible that it was for them, or it's possible that the drink was there just to give to those who were being crucified. We don't necessarily know for sure. And they could wet their lips, and that actually, if they sucked down any of that liquid, it would prolong their agony because they'd live longer if they were drinking this, because crucifixion dried you out. So Jesus has severe physical thirst, which is normal for crucifixion, and fulfilling the prophecy is indeed part of what John's saying. He said, I thirst in order to fulfill prophecy, but he's also just thirsty. He's not lying here. He's spoken the truth everywhere, including here. He indeed thirsts. But the physical thirst for Jesus would have been rather intense. Crucifixion has been described by some as like swallowing fire. That's what it feels like on the inside. Intense heat, dehydration, asphyxiation as you're trying to breathe and your lungs are barely able to get air. And then you hang down again before you get the next breath. But what Jesus has just gone through, remember, is way more intense than just the physical aspects of crucifixion. The lights have now turned on. He has just been forsaken by his father and he has gone through hell or the outpouring of God's wrath against our sin that was put on him. He's just gone through that. And if you recall from the Bible, how hell being under God's wrath is described, it will make sense that he says, I thirst, Matthew 25, 41, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire. Matthew 13, 40, at the end of the age, the Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. Mark 9, 43, it is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And Luke 16, parable of the rich man and Lazarus. They're both dead. Lazarus is in heaven next to Abraham's side. The rich man is in hell, and you recall what he said to Abraham. Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. So it shouldn't surprise any of us that Jesus, just, just because of crucifixion itself, but more so on account of what he's just gone through and making payment for our sin, and suffering that anguish under God's wrath would say, 
I thirst. Now, this is a bit ironic, as a lot of people have noticed throughout history. It's ironic because in the very Gospel of John, where this is recorded, if you go back several chapters, we're told in John 4.13, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. And then John 7.37, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Why is the one who can turn water into wine not providing for his thirst? How can Jesus offer us sort of eternal water so we never thirst again, but on the cross, he's thirsty. Why can't he satisfy his own thirst? Number one is just his commitment to suffering. He's going to suffer every ounce that our sins deserve. He's not getting any easy way out. Whatever the Father has determined to do to crush me according to his will, he's going to undergo. But he's also doing it just to fulfill the scripture and even Psalm 22 Verses 14 to 15, I am poured out like water. My strength is dried up like a pot's herd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You laid me in the dust of death. Just dried out, beloved. That's our Lord and Savior on the cross. Dried out. He's like a pot's herd. His strength is. Now, those of you who've gone through pottery class, art class, know what a pot's herd is like. It's a piece of clay. And you know what it's like when it's dried out, right? It goes in there, this lumpy thing that's pretty flexible. You can poke it and make all dents in it. It's wet. You put it in the kiln and you dry it out and it comes out, what? Hard and brittle, very dry. There's not an ounce of moisture anywhere in it. Baked it up six, seven, eight hundred degrees for a long time. That's the portrait of Jesus all the way down to his very inner being. Dried out, absolutely baked in his soul because he made payment for sin. And he went to the hell that we should have gone to. He went all the way under God's wrath and made payment for every one of our sins that we should have had to pay for. He went into the unquenchable fire, as it were, and he exhausted it in about three hours time, which testifies to the fact that he must be God. Because for everyone who doesn't believe, they will be in the unquenchable fire, but it will never end because full payment will never have been rendered because our sin is against an infinitely eternal God. So there is Jesus having gone through that furnace for us. He's standing in our place. And the one who could have made water for him to drink just sat there and baked and thirsted. And A.W. Pink said this, he thirsted on the cross that we might drink the water of life and thirst no more forever. Let me sort of impress this upon us. You and I will never have to undergo this kind of thirst ever. You and I as believers will never have to be in the position of the rich man. I don't know if you've ever been really thirsty, like walking through a desert. If you've gone a few days, let's say, of working in the intense heat and haven't drinking a drop of water, what happens? You have this desire that just unquench you. You just need water. And when you drink the water, it tastes incredibly sweet, right? Well, it almost tastes like it has sugar in it when you're that dehydrated. Our Lord Jesus Christ went through that for us. He went through the furnace of God's wrath so that we would never have to know what that is like ever, what it is like to be entirely baked underneath God's wrath. Matthew Henry, the torments of hell are represented by a violent thirst in the complaint of the rich man who begged for a drop of water to cool his tongue. To that everlasting thirst, we had all been condemned if Christ had not suffered on the cross and said, I thirst. 
I don't know what to say other than just behold what your Savior, my Savior, went through for our redemption. Marvelous to behold. The next thing I want us to notice and to stare at for a little bit is that Jesus saves sinners completely. And this is in verse 30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And if you take a look at that ending there, he gave up his spirit. Uh, the language is such that it's very clear that what Jesus said in John 10, 18 has just happened. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it again. You can make the argument that he does not actually take his life back again. That's the Father and the Holy Spirit resurrecting him. But here, what's very clear in the passage is that Jesus laid down his life of his own accord. He died early, and we'll notice that uh, in the next paragraph in John when he records the death of Jesus and the soldiers walking through to pierce his side. So Jesus breathed his last. He gave up his spirit. All was fulfilled. All the work that he'd come to do was done. And he decided it's over. My work is finished. Time to go down and destroy death. And J.C. Ryle said the mightiest transaction that ever took place on earth since the fall of man was accomplished when Jesus gave up the ghost. The finest pictures of the crucifixion that artists have ever painted give a miserably insufficient idea of what took place when Jesus gave up his spirit. They can show a suffering man on a cross, but they cannot convey the least notion of what was really going on, the satisfaction of God's broken law, the payment of sinners' debt to God, and the complete atonement for a world's sin. And just before he does this, he yells, it's finished. Just before he gives up his spirit and goes into the grave, he yells to Telestai, or he says to Telestai. Charles Simeon on the word to Telestai says, since the foundation of the world, there was never a single word uttered in which such diversified and important matter was contained. Every word indeed that proceeded from our Savior's lips deserved the most attentive consideration, but to Telestai eclipses all. To do justice to it is beyond the ability of men or angels. Its height, depth, length, and breadth are absolutely unsearchable. Spurgeon said this about to Telestai, an ocean of meaning and a drop of language, a mere drop. It would need all the other words that were ever spoken or ever can be spoken to explain this one word. And J.C. Ryle, it is surely not too much to say that of all the seven famous sayings of Christ on the cross, none is more remarkable than this. Well, if you were standing before Jesus' cross in his day, what would you have heard? What references would you have thought of when you hear him say to Telestai? Well, this is the language that servants and slaves would use to describe a work that the master had given them and they were finished with it. So if they had an errand to run, if they had a work to do, a field to plow, or whatever the case may have been, when they were done with the work, they would come back to their master and they would report to Telestai. It's finished. The task you gave me is over. So it should, it should come as no surprise that when the greatest work of a servant, the one who in John 4.34 said, my food is to the will of him who sent me and to accomplish or complete or finish his work, the same language, it should come as no surprise that when Jesus was done with his work as the ultimate servant, the one who took on flesh and became a servant, that he would cry, it's finished. Artists would use this language as well. If they were working on a big work of art, a sculpture, a painting, whatever the case may be, when they got to the end of it and decided there was nothing more that needed to be done, they would say of their work to Telestai. And priests also would use the language when an animal passed inspection for sacrifice. It was not uncommon that a priest would use that language. Now, 
What does Jesus mean when he says this then? What's the point? I'm greatly helped by 19th century Anglican Bishop of Liverpool, J.C. Ryle, whom I've already mentioned here. He had quite a few things that are embedded in this meaning. And as he said, I'm going to say too, we've got a few more than he wrote down, but it's, there's just a world of meaning in this word. It's hard to flush it all out. The first thing that is meant that we know for sure is that the work of our redemption is finished. The work is done. Jesus had paid the debt off. He satisfied the justice of God. He suffered the chastisement which brought us peace. Everything which caused him to sweat drops of blood and declare that his soul is sorrowful unto death has been finished. Now, as I was thinking about this, my mind went back to a rather stressful time when I was at Iowa State. A previous ex-coach had hired me, which was his first mistake, to run New Cat 5 cable, which was the greatest thing in internet speed at the time. I think they're at Cat 6 or who knows what they're at now. But anyways, I had a run, there were about 40 runs and had to redo his office building at which I think like 30 or 40 people worked. And I had to do this through the night. So I started at like five o'clock when everybody got off work and I worked through the night and it was like five or six the next morning and I hooked everything up and not one thing worked, not nothing. <laughs> well, everybody's showing up in about two hours here. So I'm of course frantic, there's no Googling, I don't have a phone, right? Who do you call? There's no, no one. So I called Central College, the IT guys there, I knew them because I had worked with them a little bit when they came into work and I said, I've got a problem. They said, oh, you've got two colors swapped around. You got to swap two wires around and then you'll be fine. So I did that on 80 different connections and people had come in, they were all waiting and I was frantic, of course, trying to do this. I've been up for way more than 24 hours at that point. And about nine or 10 o'clock, I can't remember which, I went to Bill and I said, it's, it's finished, it's done. And I'm guessing we've all had tasks in our life, right? Work that's been hard, arduous. You don't know if you're going to make it through. And when you're finally done with it, it's just a relief to say what? It, oh, it's done. Finally finished. It's off my list. Finally done with it. Well, imagine coming down into this world underneath the decree of your father with work that requires every ounce of your being. Sleep, almost optional. Got too much praying and healing to do. The Ten Commandments got to obey them all. Not just outside. There's not a sinful thought or a motive or an attitude. I've got to do all that. And then I've got to go all the way to the cross and deal with all that shame. And I've got to have all the sins of these rebels, these people put on me. And I've got to be treated just like they deserve, even though I've done everything perfectly and I've never sinned. That's a lot of work, beloved. So when Jesus cries out, it's finished. This is not the cry of someone defeated. This is the cry of someone who's victorious. It's finished. It's done. The work that my father gave me to do, it is all completely over. The second thing we know about this is that God's eternal will, which required his son be crushed, was now accomplished. So that's finished too. It was the will of the Lord to crush him, Isaiah 53. And Jesus says, it's finished. God's plan of redemption is finished. Jesus can see the finish line. The third thing we know is Jesus' work of obedience was finished. He'd kept the law. There was no sin in him. If Jesus had but one sin in him, he couldn't say it's finished. If he had not discharged his duty fully, he could not declare it's finished. But he fully obeyed the law, and he could declare at the end then, the whole law is kept. My work of obedience is finished completely. I've obeyed my Father perfectly. Something else we know is that Jesus finished fulfilling the prophecies of the Old Testament. 
All throughout his ministry, he filled prophecy after prophecy. Some have counted there's like 320 or 30. If you want to go into all the details, he finished all of them. He fulfilled every single prophecy about him in the old covenant regarding his first coming. It's finished. And then the sufferings of his earthly ministry are over. His work involved much suffering, not just work, but suffering work, painful work. So Jesus' work involved rejection, shame, disgrace, misunderstanding, hatred, scorn, pain. He had to drink the cup of God's wrath down to its last drop. And he's saying of all that suffering, the end of his humiliation, right? He's at the bottom now, right before it turns up into resurrection and ascension and session and second coming, right at the bottom, he says, it's finished. My suffering, my earthly humiliation is at the end. And he's also declaring the end of the sacrificial system. It's over. Remember John, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Well, what happens when that lamb is slain? All the other animal sacrifices are finished. For 1,300 years, the people of Israel have been making sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice, morning, evening, all throughout the day at the various feasts of Israel throughout the year. And Jesus says regarding his payment, it's finished. There's no more need for another sacrifice. Hebrews 10, 4, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Just impossible. But what happens when the Lamb of God comes down and he sheds his blood? Well, Jesus has appeared once for all at the end of ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, Hebrews 9, 26. And he declares it's finished. There is not a need for any other sacrifice to be made. No more bulls. No more goats. I have ended sacrifice. There is complete forgiveness. Now, I want to meditate on this for just a little bit and try and drive this home to our hearts. There are so many things in this life which we will never finish or complete, right? Houses and vehicles, never ending. If we're not working on something proactively, we're doing it passively because it broke. Stuff is always breaking. There's always things to do. Our work is never finished. Whatever calling you have throughout the week, is it ever done? You ever get to the complete bottom of your to-do list and say, oh, finally I'm finished. No, there's just, it doesn't happen. There's always more to do. How about taking care of ourselves and others? Wouldn't it be nice if we could sit down to a meal and afterwards say it's finished? I never have to eat again, right? That never happens. Or I had a great cup of water, it's finished, I never have to drink again. Marriage, wouldn't it be incredible if after a hard day of marriage and family relationships and friendships, we could declare it's finished. And from that day forward, we would never ever have to work on our marriage again. It'd be perfectly blissful and awesome in all of our relationships. But it doesn't happen. There's always work to do on our family relationships. If you look at your life and I look at mine, we will discover a never-ending task, a never-ending list of tasks which have not been finished, but there is one thing which is absolutely fully, completely, 100% complete and will never require any work or sweat or toil or stress from you or me, and that's eternal life in Christ. Now, this is hard for us to grasp because it's unlike anything else we experience in all the world. There is nothing in this world that is completely 100% done, ever. And if we think there is, just give it a day or two, there'll be something more to do with it. But how about this? our redemption in Christ. And it is very tempting, beloved, because of the world we live in, to actually live like Jesus' work is not finished. 
Of course, we say it is. We confess it is. We believe it is when we read it. Theologically, we know, oh yeah, no more sacrifices. But to live like it's true, that can be a real big challenge. There's a lot of us as believers who are tempted to go out into the world and say, hey, I know there's a lot that Jesus did for me, but there's still something I have to do. There's still something I need to add to it. And we can live our lives trying to add to it and discovering that actually this Christian life isn't fun anymore. The world's religions all scream do, Christianity screams done. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus did not say from the cross, you guys go finish it now. I got us a great start. I'll be your cheerleader to the end. What did Jesus say from the cross? It's done, it's finished. There is nothing left anybody needs to do to save my people. You believe in me, it's finished. It's all over. It's on the count of the finished work of Jesus that any of us can have true joy. We're Americans, I was trying to think of a way to put this. We're Americans, we prize uh, money. If we're in Eastern cultures, we prize family relationships, et cetera, and status in society. Imagine if you were 20 years old and someone told you that at 40 years old, you would uh, become the sole owner of a retirement account valued at $100 billion, okay? Just imagine with me. What would you do? You're 20, you've got 20 years before you get $100 billion. Would you go get a job based on how much they have for 401k matching? Be ridiculous. No, of course not, no way. <laughs> Who's gonna get $100 billion stored up in 20 years, right? Would you pick a job based on how much money it paid? No, no, it, that's irrelevant. No, in 20 years, I'll be basically the wealthiest person in the entire world. Would you pick a job and just serve somehow? Yeah, that's what, that's what we would do. Pick a job and just go serve. It really doesn't matter the job. And I can tell you how you would do that job. We do it with tons of joy. We'd probably be telling a lot of people, hey, look at what I have coming my way. It would, we'd be excited about it. What if someone bought your way into heaven? What if someone paid for your plane ticket to the promised land? What if someone bled and sweat and obeyed so that you could take a 747 jetliner right through heaven's gate? Would you board the plane or would you drive? Would you argue with the stewardess that you want to contribute a tip? Would we sit at the airport asking to take a different plane for the super special people? If our entrance into heaven has been fully secured by Christ and the ticket into God's eternal presence has been paid, then who of us would ever entertain this crazy notion? that somehow I can add to it, or I should add to it, or I even want to add to it. Why would I even want to do that? But if we understand that it's really finished, then what does that do in our hearts? It just gives us a life that's filled with joy. I'm, I'm getting in. But I don't know how you'd rate your chances if I were to interview your heart or you were to interview mine. I don't know how you'd rate your chances or what probability your heart would say that you have of getting into heaven. I know we'd all say 100% based on Jesus, but what would your heart say? If you looked at your heart and what drives you and what drives me, would we discover I am driven to just praise and thank God? 
And it is an unbelievable privilege and a tremendous joy to do this. Even in the hard days, what joy to serve him because he's so incredibly loving toward me and so gracious. Or if we interviewed our hearts, would our hearts be saying this? Yeah, that's awesome, but I, I've just, I've got to do better than this other person. Yeah, that's great, but I, I've got to prove to God that, that I'm worthy to be accepted in there. Yeah, I've got to do my part. If that's where our hearts are and mine operates there way too often, then what we need to hear is Jesus cry from the cross, it's finished. There's no more obedience that needs to be offered. You're going to be in heaven and receive eternal life. I think one of the greatest reasons why there are so many believers walking around the world today with absolutely no joy or very little of it is this, they're too proud to accept a finished gift. We are. You know what? Lord, if you would give me 99% and I contribute 1%, I'm good with that. But you're giving me a finished gift? You're, you're finishing the whole thing? So there's nothing left for me to do? I, that just grates on my pride. You're saying some pretty powerful things about me and they're not positive. They're negative. Like you don't want me to contribute? And the Lord, as it were, would say, the only thing you contribute is debt and sin. That's what we contribute. So Jesus has fully paid for all of our sins, beloved, through his work on the cross. And there's one more thing, but, but there's nothing like it. Don't, don't go out into this world thinking, hey, there's something for me to do by way of obedience to, to better earn God's favor and to make it up to him for what he's done for me. There's nothing left. Just our job is to go lovingly serve him. There's one more thing I want to highlight here. So it was typical on Friday mornings, uh, reading some of the Passover uh, accounts that uh, the lamb that had been observed all week, that sacrificial lamb that had been observed all week and staked out in the temple court, that the priest would uh, come and examine it and give the final declaration about that, uh, that lamb. Did it make muster? And Jesus came in to Jerusalem at that same time. And what was happening to Jesus is the same thing that was happening to that emblematic Passover lamb. He was being examined. People are going to stare at him just like they do the lamb. They're going to try him. They're going to find any fault in him. And if they do, they're going to have to get rid of the lamb and find a new one. Well, Jesus has gone all through these trials and all through everything. False witnesses are the only thing that that's the best evidence against him was lies. Nobody found anything against him. And what the priest would declare after the lamb had been declared to be uh, faultless was to telestai. And what is fascinating is that Jesus Christ here, in place of that, around the time that that would happen, where the lamb would be declared to have cleared muster, to have passed inspection and could be sacrificed and we can all go do our Passover celebrations, Jesus declares to Telestai. Nobody declared it about him. He stood as the sovereign Lord, the great I am, God in the flesh, and said it about himself because he's the high priest. It's finished. I've been examined. I've been stared at. I've been looked at. And I'm the lamb who's qualified. And I've been slain. And now sins are forgiven. Beloved, I don't know how you go about your life. You likely don't know how I go about mine. But one thing I know we're called to in light of this text is just a glory and delight in this finished gift that comes to us 
that's perfectly free. It's a delight that we live for the rest of our lives. There's nothing to add to it. In fact, if we add to it, we just make it worse. It's like taking the Sistine Chapel and like spreading black paint all over it. Just all of a sudden the beauty goes away. We have this finished gift. What are we doing with it? If there's any here who are thinking, you know, surely there's something I can do to be saved. Surely there's some work I need to do in order to have God look upon me with favor and gain entrance into heaven. I, I would suggest that if that's what you're saying, there is something you can do and it's stop doing anything. Your doing is the problem. Receive the finished work of Christ. Believe in him. Take his record. Stop trying to amass your own. And if you live in his record, if you take his record, if you believe in him, you will be saved and your entrance, entrance into heaven is secure. Let's pray.